Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Happy 100! Happy 100! Woohoo! Hey! All right! Oh boy, everybody! Thank you! Thank you! <laughs> oh, sit down! Thank you. Yeah, sit down! Stay, no, sit and down. you know what? No, stay standing! Stay yeah. standing! <laughs> I mean, come on! Yeah, this is the hundredth episode. Get up off your feet! <laughs> yes, Let's thank hear you. Hear it from you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Gee whiz! All right. Hey, it's our uh, our centennial. We've hit triple digits, Jeff. Wow! I hope I hit triple digits as well. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I hit triple digits on the scale all the time, but uh, <laughs> <Uh-oh. yeah. laughs> That's not good. well, you know. You know. Uh, hey, welcome to Mash Matters, episode one hundred. I'm Ryan Patrick, alongside my friend Jeff Maxwell. Jeff, how are you? I am very excited to be here on our wonderful hundredth anniversary episode. This is an amazing. Well, it's a hundredth episode, not necessarily an anniversary. Is that right? Am I? It's an anniversary of our first episode, right? First episode, right? Okay, it's the the hundredth anniversary anniversary of our first episode. episode. Yeah. Now, um, so you get on the scale, and what are you? How how does that work? (laughs) No, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. Um, Hey, uh, so a few things before we jump into this episode, because this is a very special episode. But first, you've asked for it. We now have a Mash Matters store where you can buy Mash Matters merchandise, or as the cool kids say, merch. Merch. Yeah. Merch. Yeah. This is very exciting. Yeah. This is really exciting to actually have our own merch store where people can go in and spend all of their money uh, buying <laughs> all <of> things that <laughs> says Mash yeah, every single dime. Spend it all. Don't yeah. think about it. So you can go to mashmatters.com, and there on the main page, you can find the link that says store, and that takes you to a place where you can buy Mash Matters t-shirts and mugs and art prints and stickers and magnets and hoodies, and uh, I think there are uh, lobster bibs, and I, there's just a little <laughs> bit of everything, I think, on there. What about cannabis products? Are we into that yet? I don't know. Uh, in certain Not states, sure. maybe. I don't know. Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you know? We can't control what you do when you buy the merchandise, how you use the merchandise. But if you are interested in buying some Mash Matters merch, you can, uh, again, find that in the store link there at our our website. Or you can also find it on our social media. All right, Jeff, this episode is very special, as I said, because we're welcoming back not one but two old friends. One is Mr. Michael Hirsch who you may recall was the uh, producer and director and creator of the Making MASH documentary and also the Memories of MASH documentary. And he was also the gentleman who graciously supplied us with the audio cassette of the table read. If you haven't heard that, you've got to go listen to that. That is a great episode, uh, exclusive audio of the table read. So that's Michael. And Michael found this cassette of an interview that he did with another old friend of yours, Jeff. Yes, Mr. McLean Stevenson. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is really kind of a special episode for me. Not only is it our 100th episode, which is very special, but it's also a very special episode that has to do and truly reveals, if anybody is interested in behind the scenes of MASH and behind the scenes of how it is to be in a TV show and what you feel and your kind of your day 
daily life and how you work with others. This is an episode that's really near and dear to my heart because we get a chance to hear, you know, from McLean, mm-hmm. who has unfortunately passed away, but we get a chance to hear what was going on in his mind and heart and soul as he was doing MASH. And uh, in listening to it, it was quite emotional for me to listen to. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned more about him than I than I thought I knew or wanted to. Well, no, I wanted to know it, but I learned a lot about him. And uh, I think everybody listening will, too. It's an emotional thing for me, and uh, I really appreciate uh, Michael providing us with this. It is an exclusive. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever heard it before. And uh, it's uh, quite a thing. I think everybody's going to really, really enjoy it, be engaged with it, and, and learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Agreed. Okay, and before we move on, I just want to make it clear, in case anybody feels this might be kind of a betrayal of anybody's trust or privacy, we want you to know we actually omitted some small portions of the material we felt weren't appropriate to this program, but everything that's here is wonderful. So you're going to hear this interview with McLean Stevenson. This is the first time that anybody has ever heard this interview. This is a very candid conversation. You're going to hear segments of it. What we're going to do, we've broken this into segments. We're going to get some background from our friend, Michael Hirsch. You're going to hear McLean tell his stories in this unfiltered, uncensored interview. And then we'll add our own little insight as well as as we go through the episode. But you're going to hear who he considers to be the best actor on the show. You're going to hear what he thought the worst script was. And really, Jeff, the biggest news comes at the very end. Very big, big, big news. We're all going to learn about why exactly McLean left the show and why exactly something happened to his character and who made that decision. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you're going to hear all that in this episode. And then at the very, very, very end of this episode, we have a little something extra and something extra special coming your way. So stick around for that. All right, Brian Patrick, on our 100th anniversary episode, why don't we start this off and let's say hi to Mr. Michael Hirsch. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about this tape you provided for us. What is it? How did it come about? When did you record this? Just give us a background on this. Sure. I had pitched CBS on the idea of doing the 20th anniversary of MASH show, what became Memories of MASH. And CBS went to Fox and Fox went to Gene Reynolds and Burt Metcalf. And the three of us ultimately got together and they were going to be the executive producers. And I was going to produce, write and direct it. When you're putting together a documentary, you have a budget, you have X number of days. I guess it's just like with feature films. You have X number of shooting days, crew days that you can have. And you want to maximize the use of those days. So you don't want to waste time when you're going to be interviewing somebody. So the way to deal with that in this kind of a documentary, as opposed to an investigative documentary, is you call up the people that you're going to ultimately interview on videotape or film. And you say, uh, can we come over? And I'd like to just sit down and talk with you and sort of pre-interview you. So we pick out what we're going to talk about when we actually have a camera rolling. And I called McLean Stevenson and he was incredibly gracious. And he said, come on over to the office. And the office was at the uh, Children's Burn Foundation on Van Nuys Boulevard in Van Nuys. Mac had apparently had been burned as a child and he gave a lot of time to this burn foundation. Hmm. And so uh, on an afternoon or a morning, I forget which, 
my associate producer, Joel Lippman, and I went over to the office on Van Nuys Boulevard. And I keep saying that because you're going to hear it on the tape because uh, the window was open. <laughs> and we thought that McLean would give us, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, which was more than enough to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. I had a little dictaphone kind of tape recorder, not even a, you know, a broadcast quality tape recorder. And I just set it on the desk and turned it on and we started talking. We didn't finish talking for about two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's like somebody opened the spigot mm-hmm. and Mac got a chance to say all the things he's been wanting to say in as much detail as he's wanted to say for apparently years. Mm -hmm. Much of it was nothing we'd ever use in the 20th anniversary show in in Memories of MASH, but it was fascinating. And so we obviously did, we taped that. I did Memories of MASH and I have these two little mini cassettes. And for years they have been in the right hand top drawer of my desk. <laughs> and and I've looked at them. I knew I had them. It's not like I forgot them, but it's like there they were. And then along comes two guys who decide to do MASH Matters. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Did they tell Jeff and Ryan that they were going to do it? I, I don't know because I'm not sure who they are. Okay. <laughs> and at some point, I mean, I've been dealing with you guys for a while on a number of things. We've, we've done shows together. And then I remembered I had these tapes. And I tried to listen to them, and it was sort of spotty. But I knew there's some gems on there. There's McLean talking about all the things people want to know about McLean. The big question of all time, why did you leave the show? Mm-hmm. How did you get along with the rest of the cast? And it was all there. And so I sent it to Jeff and Ryan. Yeah. And after uh, a lot of high-tech digital futzing around, which I, I'm not sure – but given the results you got out of this tape and cleaned it up, I know the CIA was involved. I don't know how you got to them, but I know the CIA or maybe the NSA had to be involved because you turned a recording that was certainly not worthy of broadcast into something that people are going to be able to hear and understand. Just turn the volume up. It's all there. Now, these tapes are... Uh, we sort of want to alert everybody. There, there is some salty language <laughs> uh, in these tapes. And so if you want to get the children out of the room, uh, go ahead and do it. We decided to sort of let it be there because this is a real thing. And we're, we're letting everybody kind of look in on a real person who experienced uh, a lot of life and a lot of interesting things during an iconic television show. And most of us just sitting around don't really get an opportunity to hear what's going on behind the scenes with regard to making a TV show and how you feel and how you live that every day. And I, I think these tapes really give a, a little bit of a, a view into what that life is like. It wasn't all, you know, roses and lollipops. And this human being, McLean Stevenson, was going through issues in his own life that we're going to hear about. And so let's listen to the first segment from this interview with McLean Stevenson. This is the moment when he knew that MASH was going to be a hit. So we did our pilot, and then we did 13, and then we did nine more. We had one break at Christmas. 
we were like 45th. That was when they had like 50 shows. We were not doing well. In reruns, Silverman put us on Saturday nights. And we were with Newhart and Carol Burnett and Mary Tyler Moore. For as much as people watched those reruns, they began to catch on to our show. And it stayed that way the next fall. And by that time, everybody was talking about our show. I was going through a divorce, living in this little dumpy thing on the corner of Hollywood and Fuller. Somebody came through California, man, and sold 57 million square yards of orange shag or olive green shag carpeting in the early 70s. You'd been there a year and a half, and you'd still find a fucking hairpin in it from somebody that lived there four years before you did. I was really glad to go to work. I was just so glad when Monday morning started. And everybody has their own personal problems. I got invited to go to WHIO in Dayton, Ohio, to open the Dayton Convention Center. I was to go and sit in the WHIO booth and sign autographs. Now, mind you, I had not been anywhere. I hadn't been out of Los Angeles. I hadn't been out of Hollywood. Because I felt so guilty about going anywhere when we stopped shooting by not being able to see my daughter. I just, I was punishing myself. I was going through a lot of shit. So I took this job, and it, uh, I think it paid uh, $1,000 in my expenses. First class to date now for two weeks, WHIO had promoted this. So as I'm walking across the street, I see this line of people, and they are going around. They're three or four deep, and they're going, they went clear around the building twice. This Phil Warner took me downstairs, and I went up on a little elevator, and I went to sit in the WHIO booth. I met all the, the people there and everything. So I'm sitting in the, the booth, and I'm not kidding it. I had 100 pictures, glossy 8 by 10s of Colonel Blake. Okay, and they're going to be stacked here, and one pen. So all the people are coming over and saying hello and how much they enjoy the show and everything. Now they open the doors. And they started lining up at the WHIO booth. Within the first half hour, the hundred pictures were gone. We had no pictures. He went over to a copy thing and he had 500 more made. To make a long story short, we ended up doing 20,000 pictures. And by the time we had done 2,000. Yeah. I'm writing my name like this. Hey, would you do that to Fred? Sure. Fred, you know. So finally, he goes and gets a photocopy plate. He got 5,000, then he got another 5,000, then he got uh, 12,000. That's when I began to realize that the show was popular. Okay. They all, they literally had come there to see this character. They were there because of MASH. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I told the guy, I can't write anymore. I actually can't, I can't make my hands move. The nurse that was there in the Dayton Convention Center, she said, let's fix your, so they wrapped gauze on. I said, I'm sorry, I can't cut my finger, and I'm, God, I just, but it's so nice to meet you in the midst. I'm curious if anybody out there has 
one of those autographed photos from that show. Wow, that'd be great. I'd love to see it. Yeah. So if you or somebody you know has one of these autographs from that particular show, scan it and, and send us a picture. Uh, Match yeah. Matters podcast at gmail.com. And then send it to uh, eBay because they'd yeah. love to see it. Boy, would they love it. Because I'd it. love to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was fascinating to hear him understand and suddenly realize what the heck he was dealing with. You know, yeah. isn't that great? Whoa, wait a minute. This is working. <laughs> wow. You think you're going to go somewhere and 20 people are going to show up and 5,000 yeah. people show up. Yeah. I mean, it's that's crazy. And, you know, it's it goes to the idea that you're working every day in a studio in a weird little room, a stage, mm-hmm. and you don't really know what's going on outside of you. And suddenly he's there out in the middle of the public. And all of a sudden, this wave of interest hit, happens to him. And I think it's just a fascinating view of, of how that works. And as an actor, you're doing this every day in this little tiny environment and suddenly you're out in the public going, whoa, this is great. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing difference between this being on the stage and then suddenly realizing what impact you're having on an audience. It's an amazing moment. It happens to you every time you go to the grocery store, right? Constantly. It's really, yeah. you know, they're grabbing my pants and my shirt, <laughs> my hair. It's I don't know. You know, it gets a little tiresome. People, please stop pulling on Jeff's yeah, pants. Please. I have to go up and buy pants all the time, and it's it's embarrassing. All right, let's go back to Mac. This is now his opinion of who was the best actor on the show. There's no question in my mind, but the best actor on the show was Gary. Barna. He had starred in Charlie Brown, which was kind of off-Broadway. It was a big show in New York. He was brilliant in it. He was fucking brilliant in it. He did do the movie, and he was great in the movie. Altman didn't give him one thing. Gary created Radar. The ability to anticipate stuff. The stuff that Gary did, the double talking, was Gary's idea, not Roger Volman's, not Richard Altman. The two guys, because Gary tried it once and it worked, both talking at the same time. When we did it, we learned each other's lines. That's how you do it. Roger Bowman never knew what was happening to him. He just wanted to come in, do it, get the money, go. So I'd learn Gary's lines and he'd learn mine because that's the only way you can do it. Otherwise, you might end up talking, the other guy doesn't say anything and isn't funny anymore. Gary would come on, on the stage and, and he'd look like Gary Virgo. And he'd go into wardrobe, he'd go into his dressing room, and he'd come out looking like Radar. And unless you called him Radar, he, he almost wouldn't speak to you. He didn't look anything as Radar like he did as Gary Burgoff. If you saw Donald Pleasance in this play, here's a man who at the time I met him was 30 years old, playing an 85-year-old man. And then 10 minutes later, they lined up five guys on the street, and you had to identify the guy that played that character, you would have not been able to say it was Donald Pleasant. Incredible transformation. Gary had the same ability. He had a sense of what was right for him. And a lot of actors don't have that. I probably didn't have it. When he put on the wardrobe, he became radar. 
So Gary Berghoff was the best actor on the set, according to McLean Stevenson. And Jeff, you've worked with, of course, all of these actors. And I know that you have uh, always felt that Gary was particularly talented when it comes to finding that character and inhabiting that character. Well, yes, he was. Absolutely. It certainly shows on the show and and by his, uh, you know, the response to fans who love him dearly and love the character, as, as did I and did we all. But, uh, you know, I am a little disappointed. I mean, I put the Igor hat on and nothing happened for McLean. I, I don't know. You know, Gary was good, but come on, you know. Uh, you know, blubber or fish, sir. You know, that's not bad stuff. Maybe you were the runner up. I could have been. And certainly Mac is entitled to his opinion. So there you go. All right. And now here is another part of our conversation with our friend, Michael Hirsch. Did you have any surprises from, from talking to him that you didn't expect? The, the biggest surprise is that he wanted to unburden his soul about everything related to MASH. I hadn't asked for that. I didn't expect it. It was a privilege that he apparently trusted me enough that he was going to do that. I I got the sense, like you're saying, he wanted to kind of come clean and, and tell what's in his heart and soul. So there wasn't a lot of, oh, funny stuff. You know, he, he's a naturally incredibly funny guy and you can hear it there. But he really kind of got down and dirty. He he wasn't that typical actor. Well, you know, yeah, it's great. And, you know, I went swimming the other day. <laughs> There wasn't a lot of that going on at all. Part of that could have had to do with the fact that he realized he wasn't doing an interview for Entertainment Tonight. Mm-hmm. He he wasn't doing doing an interview where he knew he had to you know be funny and wrap it up in thirty seconds and give him a soundbite. Right. It, it was more conversation and less interview. Yeah. And that's what gave him the freedom to just go. And boy, he did go, and he is going to go on now and talk about his relationship with director Jackie Cooper. Jackie Cooper came in and directed 19 episodes and won an Emmy and never came back. He'd been a star as an actor as a child. He had run Screen Gems, and he had hired Gene Reynolds to direct. He did Hogan's Heroes. He hired him to do a lot of stuff. And I don't know whether Gene Reynolds was paying him back or not, but he was good. Jackie Cooper was one hell of a director in terms of getting pictures, but in communicating with certain of the cast, he was the worst. I don't know how to say it tactfully, but he was he was immediately Alan's best friend. Had very little patience with Gary. Called him the kid. Gary and I were laughing so fucking hard. Every time somebody would say something, calm down and let's take a break and everybody get off the set, somebody called Gene Reynolds. When Gene Reynolds came racing up, every time he opened his mouth, we'd laugh. He sat us over in the corner and said, now what the hell is it with you guys? We'd start laughing, and we'd look at each other, and we'd laugh. Gene Reynolds said to us, look, you guys have to work together. You're going to have to work this out. Now, if we can't talk about it, the three of us, then you two sit here and talk about it. But is there anything either one of you want to say right now while I'm here because I've got to go back to work? And we're laughing. And I said, how about fucking you take it through? And Gary said, okay. So I worked and okay. We both yelled, fuck you, Jackie Cooper. And he was standing at the other end of the stage. So then Jackie came up and he sat down and he said, what's going on, guys? Jackie, I'll tell you right now, 
Gary and I were fighting with each other, but actually, it was you we were fighting. And he said, what are you talking about? Okay, you ask, I'm going to tell you. I don't want you to call him kid anymore. It's degrading. He's not a kid. He's a fine actor. And though kid is an endearing term to you for the young, comedic, whatever, it's degrading. And the second thing I want to tell you is I want to be treated by you as well as you treat Alan Alda. Alan Alda is not your best friend. Alan Alda is not going to go to the Atlanta Firecracker 500 with you. And I have great respect for you as a director, but little respect for the way you treat some of the people, and particularly the atmosphere and the extras on this show. They're as important to this show as Gary and I. That's all I have to say. And he said, Gary, and he said, yeah, I don't want you to call me kid anymore. He said, okay, I apologize to you both, and I will do my best to not do some of those things that perhaps I have been guilty of. He said, you realize, of course, we're under a tight schedule here, and I, I love all of you. I really do. Any minute. And you're all fine actors, and I'm sorry if I have offended either of you or anyone else in terms of... Uh, my attitudes or things I've said. And from then on, I must say, I felt badly when he didn't come back. That was like show number 18. And we had a good AD. We had two good ADs. Len was very sharp. He was. Now, when you have like 18 people doing something, they have to make crosses, they have to be working, they have to be focused, they have to. It's very hard for them, too. I mean, we weren't getting a lot of money, but we're sure making a hell of a lot more than $55 a day. Now, let's say that you're the extra and you've been asked by Len Smith to come to me and say, you know, our lab ain't much, but the results of this are bad. Okay? That's all you have to say. Now, Roy comes up and Len Smith had just said to, to Roy, go ask Jackie if he wants you to come. Here's the operating table. Here's Alan. If he wants you to come around this way, and hand this thing over to the over the patient, or come around this way, and say, excuse me, but, uh, you know, okay, so he comes up and he says, Mr. Cooper, he says, Kate, what do you want? Damn it, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of atmosphere coming up here, and t I'm talking to Mr. Alda. Now, what is it? Well, I just wanted to know if you want me to come around this way, and then he's, I'm sorry, and he'd walk away. And then Alan said, well, wait, and then Alan said, well, wait a minute, Roy, what did you want to do? He said, well, I, you know, he said, Alan, you don't have to talk. Just tell me. I'm the director. And then he'd say, Len, now from now on, I don't want the extras coming to me. They come to you. Then you come to me. I mean, there was this stuff going on all day long. After a while, I mean, with the schedule that we had, you know, and then the, the TV guy people want to see you and the so forth wants to see you from the Dayton Herald and whatever. Or they tell you, you got a telephone call. What, you know, your wife's attorney's called and if you don't give her the house, uh, you know. So it's like, you you got a lot of stuff going on just in life, and this is not a way to treat people. So it was just, that's what came out, that thing between Gary and I. I'm going to tell you a story about Gary. I was hanging, taking stuff out of the laundry, obviously, and I'm hanging it on a rope, and I had a pair of GI shorts, I had a t-shirt, and I said to the prop guy, hey, what about if I have a, you know, bra and a slip? And some silk stockings and then a couple of pairs of my socks. I mean, it'll, it's something kind of funny to do while I'm doing this. We don't have to comment on it. 
you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's a, it's a statement in itself. I did the laundry, and I'm, it's obviously Linda's, or Lorraine's, or who the hell ever else. He said, "Yeah, it's a great idea." So I'm doing this stuff. This guy gets me a brazier. I mean, it was obviously, it, it should not have been a brazier with cups this big, okay? <laughs> but he did, and we're blocking. And I, and Gary has this line to me, and it's a funny line. But I pull this sprout, and I go to hang it. I got a tooth. I got this. I got close to the one mouth, and I'm talking like this. And I reach down, I pull this, and he takes me. And Gary has this funny line, and I'm going to put the prop. I'm saying, I had a line like, uh, okay, what is it? What do you want? And uh, I hang up the bra, and everybody on the stage laughs. And it goes right over Gary's line, and he, it was it, it just infuriated. He said, why didn't you tell me you were going to do that? I said, tell you what I was going to do what? Hang up a bra like that. And I said, well, I just talked to the prop guy about it. I thought it would be fun. He said, you know, you always get to be funny. And the next thing is he pushed me. And I got up, and that's when we started, and then we started laughing. Well, anyway, that's, that's, that was a Jackie Cooper. Wow. You know, the interesting thing is when I first got to MASH, I, I was not aware of most of the actors on the show. I really wasn't. Uh, but one day I walked on the set, and there was Jackie Cooper. Jackie Cooper I knew. I'd seen him in movies and I'd seen him on television. He had a television series called Hennessy that I really, really liked. And uh, boy, I was thrilled to see Jackie Cooper. And it was one of the first times I had a line. In fact, I, my line to was to Gary. And I remember I say, you son of a gun, you. We were standing in the mess line. <laughs> Apparently he was, a, you know, they thought he had impregnated <laughs> somebody. Uh, yeah. I mean, somebody, you know, you know what I mean. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> but I was very nervous, not because I was saying anything, but because Jackie Cooper was the director. Amazing. Well, but there you go. And uh, <laughs> now we know uh, what the issues were, which I didn't know what the issues yeah. were. Yeah, I'm still my- looking for the issues, as a matter of fact. I don't know where they are. <laughs> Hold on. Let me look in the drawer here. Any, any issues? No, I don't see any. Okay. Not a lot of love for Jackie. I guess not. Sorry, Jackie. Okay. Before we get back to Mac, let's take a moment and shine the spotlight on our guest, Michael Hirsch. You are a very esteemed and accomplished author along with being a television producer and writer and so forth, but you are an author of many books. I'd like to know exactly how many books you have written. I think it's 11. Wow. If you count a small one that I put together because my editor called up and said, you know, we had to put together a book of military humor. And I said, really? He said, yeah, there's a market for it. You know, they put it at the cash registers and we can just do it. (laughs) And so I was working on some other project at the time and I sort of set it aside and we ended up doing a book of military jokes called Your Other Left. Ah. But when people ask me how many books I've written, I sort of don't count that. Mm. <laughs> well, you should. Yeah, why not? Your name's on it. It's on Amazon. It is. And the most recent book that you published, what's the name of that book? Cleared Hot. That's a book I wrote with a man named Brian Slade, who was an Apache gunship helicopter pilot in Afghanistan in 2007 and has a fascinating life story. It's a very exciting book. It is the best collaboration I've ever done. Working with him was a joy. We were just actually talking about that the other day. He said it was an incredible fitting together of a liberal Jew and a conservative Mormon. You can guess which one I am. (laughs) 
both of whom were united because of our military backgrounds. I was a combat correspondent with the 25th Division of the U.S. Army in Vietnam in 1966, and he's been a career military person, first in the Army, and then he switched to the Air Force. Strange things happen. He flew rescue helicopters out of Kandahar, Afghanistan, a base I was at before he got there because I was writing a book called None Braver about the Air Force pararescue men. And he actually flew some of the same guys I wrote about in my first book. Wow. Which was it just, you know, coincidences do happen. So uh, Cleared Hot is the book. Michael Hirsch and Brian Slade are the co-authors. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I appreciate that. Thank you. And we do get, uh, what do we get, 30% on each book? Well, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate that. Talk to Mr. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, call the other Jeff. <laughs> All right. And again, you can find the links to Michael's latest book and all of his books in the show notes for this episode, episode 100 at mashmatters.com. All right. Well, hey, let's get back to Mac and uh, hear his discussion about Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart. The, uh, the the genius of Gene Reynolds, in addition to putting the ensemble together, was his ability as a director. He's the best director I've ever worked for. In fact, I, I would be amazed. And sometimes when I would be doing off-camera stuff, doing close-ups like a scene between right. Gary and I, I was amazed that Gene, who had been, as you know, an actor himself, uh, a writer, casting director. I mean, the man really paid his dues. That right behind me, if I were right next to the camera, would be Gene. And I would sometimes see Gene doing Gary's lines. He knew all of our lines. And he not only knew them, but he was sort of acting them out. And he, too, could make the most bizarre thing seem real. I'm sure you've read the book, Mesh. Okay. The book was 22 chapters and was episodic by nature. But for a movie, it really was a difficult problem because they, they had all these 22 little stories, almost like a diary. So the transitions from one story to another, they generally went back to the OR. They would show these guys pulling out a liver or a spleen or doing shtick in the operating room. Well, that's fine for a movie. But it really wasn't the way the MASH doctors work. And it would not sustain itself in a living room as a series, week in and week out. The key to, in my view, the success of MASH were the combined talents of Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds. And the fact that they chose not to go the way of the book or some sort of hijinks, madcap, view of what a mass unit was, but rather to keep everything in the OR as accurate, as real as they could make it. There were some funny things that happened in the operating room, and for a long time there was no laugh track. If you were doing surgery, there never was a laugh track. But there might be a laugh track if after the surgery was over, there was some stuff going on, usually going to or from the operating room. And by making these guys look like they were dedicated, overworked, perhaps extending themselves beyond their skill, which was the case in MASH, in MASH units in Korea. Players could wear a dress and you could hit each other with a pie in the face and the people bought it. Keeping that kind of discipline, keeping that kind of framework 
which writers had to write was not an easy job. And this is this was another genius of Larry Gelbart, is taking some of the stuff that we did that was really absurd and by just making very subtle changes and or playing it for real, it would work. And of course to me the star of Nash was always the writing. Larry Gelbart was a genius for not only writing himself, but seeing that which someone else had written and making it better. And more often than not, he made it better by one, making it simple, and two, making it real. And Jeff, you have talked uh, on countless occasions here on the podcast, your feelings about the genius of Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart. I really have, and I, I really believe it. I mean, if it weren't for them, I don't think we would be doing this podcast or have uh, any discussions about MASH. The two of them were able to create something really magical, and uh, it exists today, and it exists so powerfully that all these years later, we're having a hundredth episode talking about what they actually created. So I'm real proud to have been a part of that and real proud to have known those two people. I know everything wasn't all, you know, peaches and roses every day with everybody. It's a family. Everybody had issues and dealings with their own life. But boy, you know, they really did a spectacular job. They really did. So (laughs) I concur. Yeah, thank you. Concur. Do you concur my concurring? Go ahead. I'm concurring with you, as a matter of fact. Get the children out of the room, please. We're concurring here. They shouldn't see this. Oh, wait. That part's coming up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, while we're having this fun, why don't we get back to uh, Michael Hirsch? So this was the pre-interview. Then you did the actual interview that was featured in Memories of MASH. And if memory serves, was that shot on a golf course? It was shot at the Calabasas Country Club where uh, Jamie was a member. Hmm. So we shot Jamie there and we shot McLean there. Okay. Uh, just because, again, it was convenient. I can get two actors, set up the crew, you know, have a setup only one time. So when, you know, you, you end up talking to him for like two and a half hours in the pre-interview, when it's filming day, when it's shooting day and you're, you've got the whole crew there and you set up a go, how long on average, and I'm sure it changes uh, from person to person, but on average, how, how long does that interview last? I don't remember with any sense of accuracy, but if it's typical, it lasted less than a half hour. Wow. Really? My and honestly, I would have to go back and look at Memories of MASH to see what we used from the interview with McLean, because <laughs> I don't remember. It's called age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After you shot uh, Jamie and Mac, did you were you able to play around a golf at the country club? I mean, that would- We did not play around a golf. We, we had them both hit some balls, and uh, Mac was embarrassed that- I forget who it was on our crew that outshot him. (laughs) He stood up there and hit the ball, and I think he shanked it and whatever, and he tossed the club in the air and walked away. (laughs) That may be in the show. I don't remember, honestly. All right, back to McLean Stevenson. Here he is talking about the circle. We had what we called a a circle, Gene Reynolds concept, that really I thought was great. We had Marty, who was our script supervisor. And Marty would sit there with us, and we'd sit in this circle. Now, the purpose of the circle was to be able to run the lines, talk about the scene. Since it was an ensemble, you you never really had that many scenes. And when you had real long dialogue, just by the circle, you know, you could go over and over and over and over and over, or Marty would help you 
Gary and I might be sitting next to one another doing a scene, or Wayne and Alan would be running a scene, or the four of us or the six of us would be working, and Marty would be there with the script. If you had to do, if you were doing a press interview, reading a book, that was not the place to go. You were not involved in the circle. Now, one nice thing about it was we never had that many script changes. I mean, you know, the subsequent shows that I've done or anyone's done where you're doing it, three cameras, four cameras, however many cameras, film or tape, live, sometimes before you make an entrance, they'll say, oh, uh, here's a uh, page. Huh? And then the ink is still shut. I got ink all over my Wait a minute, I'm on, you know. We'd get pink and blue and yellow and stuff, but we always got them in plenty of time. We'd have that meeting, that script meeting, and by uh, we'd have a couple of hours off, and Larry would go back and do his magic, and we'd get pages. Um, occasionally, we'd get pages delivered to the house, but you always had plenty of time. Whether or not you were prepared was another thing, but I don't ever remember somebody not being prepared. Okay, so before we get to the next segment, I want to echo something that, Jeff, you said a little bit earlier in the interview, which is Mac gets a little salty with the language, especially in this next segment. So uh, just giving you warning, there is some language and there is some content in parts of the next segment that may be a little uh, heavier than what you expect to hear from Henry Blake. (laughs) So (laughs) you... You have been warned. <laughs> yeah, we certainly didn't hear any of that from Henry Blake on television. No, no. Because they had censors. <laughs> You're about to hear it here because we don't. <laughs> uh, and also in this segment, you are going to hear what Matt considered to be his least favorite script from MASH. So here you go. Here's McLean Stevenson. We used to read on, we'd say we started on a Monday. We would read in the morning block in the afternoon on stage, start shooting Tuesday and Wednesday. We would shoot three days. So Friday, we were reading another script. So what I'm getting at is in some weeks, we were doing as many as two shows, shooting as many as two shows in one week. And about every fourth or fifth week, we'd do pickups. We'd be at the ranch, we'd do pickups for a show that we shot three weeks before. Or we'd have to go in and do looping and stuff like this for a show that we'd shot three weeks before. Everybody, so it got, it was a pretty demanding schedule. I don't know that, uh, I don't know that a series could be shot that way today. I think if it were as well written, well directed, well organized as MASH was, it could be. There was, if you were to say to me, was there ever a script we all sat down and read, sat at a table on Monday afternoon, and more than one person said, this is a piece of shit. Okay? I can't remember anybody ever saying that. In other words, I can't remember ever a time when one person said, this is shit, and the other five of us, I'm talking about the first three and a half years, would say, what are you talking about? It's great. Or you're just pissed because your part's not big or whatever. you got to remember that in Nash, when we first started, we were not a tremendous success. Right. We were up against Daffy Duck and Dinner. We were on Sunday nights opposite Disney. We followed Anna and the King with Ewell Brenner. The show was a piece of crap. I can remember about the second show we did, I mean, shot, when we, when we walked over to look at that set. Well, unless it were 60 degrees on that stage, Yul Brenner would not come in. And his salary was greater than the total salary of the six of us. You see, we really didn't realize how good we were or how good the show was 
until we almost got canceled is about what happened. And because Freddie Silverman felt, hey, the show is great and it's going to take time, and he stayed with us and then he switched us, did it become successful? From Sunday night, we moved to Saturday night. This was in the second year. Now, I'm, I'm sort of rambling, but I want to go back and tell you an experience that I, when I realized how big the show was, because I didn't know. I would go every day, and with that shooting schedule, I lived at the corner of Hollywood and Fuller. I'd get in my little car. I'd go to the lot. I, uh, there were no other series except The Rookies and Anne and the King being shot. 20th Century was not in the motion picture or television business. Aaron Spelling was in business there. But we were the only show besides Anna and the King that was on that lot. You could shoot a cannon down the street and not hit anybody. And occasionally, in the second year, they'd come in and they'd, Irwin Allen would do a movie or they would be doing something where we couldn't get into makeup because the, these guys were putting on ape suits at 4 o'clock in the morning. They were doing the Planet of the Apes. But one time we got a script called Edwina. After we were through reading it, you could have heard a pin drop. This is our second year. This is after we realized, you know, we were, we're success. We're being moved to Saturday nights. Uh, the shows that have been on so far on Saturday nights were in the top ten. I mean, we, everybody was really happy. But in any event, nobody said anything. And Larry Gelbart, he looked around and said, well, doesn't anybody have anything to say? And nobody said anything. And then Loretta said, I won't do this show. Now, it wasn't like anybody was getting too big for their britches. We're not talking Delta Burke, because Loretta really, uh, each of us in our own way, had, had problems. Larry Linville, for example, I mean, struggled for two years to find who Major Burns was. You know, he was going crazy. Loretta, here we are shooting a show in the 70s about something that happened in the early 50s, but Loretta's very active in what was the very early stages of of now, of a women's movement, of equal rights and equal pay and all of that. And so she oftentimes had to remind herself that in those days it was a very chauvinistic atmosphere. Women were sex objects. Women were not what they were trying to get to be in 72. And she said, I won't do the show. And Larry without even having to say why. I said, well, I can understand how you feel, but remember now, we're doing a show about 1952. And she said, I would find this offensive in 1952. And we sort of went around the table. Alan said, I agree. Uh, everybody agreed that it was something we shouldn't do. I had a totally different reason for not wanting to do it. And it just, well, I had this, I agreed with them. The show was about a fat nurse, and in just reducing it to its simplest terms and at the risk of being totally crude, one of the guys had to fuck her or nobody else was going to get fucked. That was the bottom line. That's what the show was about. Now, when it came to me, I said, I'll tell you, I agree with what everybody else has said, but I'll tell you one other thing. We're going to turn off a lot of, you know, single lady don't have anything better to do than watch our show and make Saturday night a kind of a special night for themselves. Gene Reynolds was sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. He's got to get a show done. We got X number of dollars per episode. Now, it was funny. Whenever you'd go to talk to Gene about money, or you'd come in and say, hey, wait a minute. We've been out here two years. We're in the top ten. Could I get another dollar and a half? Could we get an air conditioning unit in the trailer? And he would say, hey, the plane, I'm just out. 
I don't. I'm I'm the executive producer. Larry does the writing. I put the show and keep it going. But you want to talk about that? Go see Perry uh, Lafferty or Bill Self. Go on up and see Bill. Bill was sitting up. He was running 20th Century Fox Television. One guy in that entire building at 20th Century Fox. One guy. You get up, up the elevator. You'd walk about a mile and a half down the hall. There he'd be at his desk with his secretary. Two people in that whole building. Hey, Bill, can I talk to you a minute? Sure, come on in, McLean. I haven't talked to anybody in three weeks. Uh, I need another $100 a week, or I'm walking. Hey, I'll do what I can. Anyway, so Larry said, nope, I'm not going to discuss it anymore. It's uh, end of discussion. I'll be back in two hours. I don't know how he did this. The premise was the same, but it was a total different story. It was a total different reason. It was a klutz. They had uh, Arlene Galanka did the part. She was a klutz. I mean, if you got near her, if you sat in the jeep with her, it would explode. If you walked across the compound, a mine would go off. It was a pretty flimsy, dumb show. It was not our best episode, but it was a show, and it did sort of. It was then. It was funny. It turned out to be a sort of tour de force for Alan because. Alan did some of the funniest things I've ever seen a man do in that show. I don't know if you remember, but he was eating lunch with her, and she was eating a pork chop, and she got ketchup on her lip, and for three minutes, he tried to get that ketchup off her lip. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen anybody do on television. And there were lots of little moments like that in the show. But as a show, as a, it did, it, it not, it, in my mind, it did not come up to the standards I don't think you'd seen it win it if you were to rerun the show and, and syndication. I don't think you you don't see it that many times. Not near as many as you mm-hmm. see the others. That was that was the worst cook we ever had. Well, I am going to go on record and say that I agree with McLean Stevenson. Edwina is one of my least favorite episodes of this series. I'm not going to say it's my absolute least favorite, mm-hmm. but it's definitely in the bottom five. And for me, it's one of my least favorite names. Um, <laughs> I'm not fond of Edwina. Oh, oh. I'm sorry to all of the Edwinas wow. out there. I'm we just sorry. lost all uh, kinds of Edwinas. <laughs> I could hear doors slamming and people screaming. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh. No, I don't, you, you, it doesn't roll off your tongue real. Edwina. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about it. But I, I could get you. I mean, I could I could come around. I could. My, no, no, uh, no. You've dug your I, hole. You've dug your latrine. You go You go stand in it, Salkowitz. <laughs> <All right. Yeah. laughs> well, let's let our, our crack production staff cut this out then. We don't want to offend anybody. Well, of course, we've offended everybody so far. So That's what the true. Heck? Why not go for Edwina? <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, well, I'm getting off this subject. Why don't we go listen to Mr. Michael? Hirsch and hear from him one last time. Listening to these tapes again, Michael, is there anything that really just stands out to you in in a big way? I guess the big headline is how little money they were making. Yeah. Which leads to why he left the show. I know there have been people over the years, including guests you've had on this program, who've said, well, he left because he wanted to be the big star. And That had nothing to do with it. Stay tuned and you'll find out why he left. And here it is. The reason that McLean Stevenson left MASH. Gene Reynolds called me into his office. He said, 
I'm doing a new show called MASH. Have you seen the movie? And I said, no. So he said, all right. We looked in the newspaper and it was showing at a theater in downtown Los Angeles. He said, can you see it this afternoon? And I said, sure. So I, I go downtown and I go into this movie theater, like the Rialto or whatever it's called, and I'm sitting in the balcony. And by the time my eyes got adjusted, I realized I am the only non-Hispanic person in this theater. And the movie was in Spanish with English subtitles. Okay, I saw the movie that way. But I understood what the movie was about. And I thought it was a great black comedy, a very funny movie. But I couldn't see how they could do this week after week after week on television. So I went back to his office. It was about 4.35 o'clock. I said, Gene, I got to tell you, I saw this movie but it was in Spanish. And I didn't understand 90% of what the hell they were saying, and I couldn't read it fast enough. But there's something about the movie that I didn't like. I said, what is that? I, said, I, I didn't like, I guess maybe my father's a doctor. And I really didn't like all this, pulling out the liver and not knowing what it was. And, and I, I mean, that I just I found that more than bizarre. I just, somehow I, I, I just, I don't know, how you would do that and make people like you. He said, that's exactly what we're not going to do. My, my feelings about MASH when I left, it was hard for me to even watch the show for a while. And I think Alan probably came closer to anybody in, this, in, in why did he leave was for money. I mean, I really needed money. The one thing I didn't know, which I didn't know until about I guess so, maybe about four years ago, five five years ago, I was over at 20th one day, I know, at uh, Paramount, and Gene was over there, and Gene was working on uh, MacGyver. And MacGyver in its second year was trying to find itself, and nobody knew what the hell the show was about, who the guy was, or what, who did he work for, did he ever... So they called Gene in, and he would be, he, would, he probably saved that show's ass. And Gene and I were having lunch in the commissary and it was really interesting he said why the hell did you leave the show and I said well I'll tell you if you tell me why I died he said fair enough so I said I had to I left for money and I told him the circumstances and he understood that and I said what about me dying he said well I was pissed Larry wasn't vindictive about it at all, but the network was incensed. And they just wanted to make damn sure because they knew you were going to sign a deal with NBC. And in fact, had already probably signed it. And so they just wanted to make sure that what you did, you didn't do on NBC or ABC as that character, as Henry Blaine. So killing you off seemed to satisfy everybody. Really respected his candor. I started out on that show, I was making about $1,250 a week. I told you that the sum total of our six salaries did not equal what Ewell Brenner was making. And Ewell Brenner was getting 17000 a week. Early on, I got to tell you, Alan was just glad to have a job. He was delighted. We all were. And I probably got too big for my britches. I'd been hosting The Tonight Show and Dave Tebbett, who's kind of an asshole, but 
company was then and still is, okay? Uh, he was their talent guy. He's the guy that would go to Germany and get Brian Keith to come off the ski slopes and do a series. Uh, but the money that he offered me to do this was incredible. I mean, I just, I never had thought in terms of that kind of money. And it was at a time when they were negotiating with Johnny for the 454th time. His contract was up. And they narrowed it down to about 29 guest hosts. And remember, this was, and I was also going through this divorce that just went on. For, it seemed, somebody said, and I forget, it's called, it's written by divorce, Dvorak, a judge, a woman judge. In 1928, she wrote this. She was a judge in Buffalo called Children of Divorce. And the one thing I remember from the book is that divorce ends legally when the judge awards whatever he awards or she awards, but it ends psychologically when you die. I've gone three years of this. And I, I just suddenly, if I could get this money, I'd get out of this, I'd get my daughter, I'd get everything I wanted. And so when this offer came on, I, I just took it. But the guy I was dealing with, it isn't important who it is, but he kept encouraging me. I mean, they're never going to give you any more money at Nash. They're just not. I mean, their attitude is if you don't do the part, there's 10 other guys that would give their right arm to do it. Well, that was not the case at all. In fact, for the first time in his life, Gene Reynolds went to the network and said, I don't want to lose this guy. I don't want to lose him. We've got this successful show. We have this ensemble that works well together. It's crazy. Now, the licensing fee, if there's, if there's only X number of dollars, we, have, we all had contracts for five years. And, the, and, all, and most agents say, well, look, if it's a, if it's a hit, take the $1,250. And if it's a hit, two years from now, we'll go in and say, look, he's not coming back unless he gets five. And they'll give it to you. Well, I wasn't playing that game. But what I didn't know was that Gene and Freddie Silverman had agreed that out of 20th Century Fox, which was a non-entity, that the difference would be made up by CBS gladly. And my salary was going to go from seventeen five to seven thousand five hundred a week. I had no, I never did know that until six years ago when I sat and talked to Gene. Which one thousand seven hundred fifty? My salary yeah. when I left Bash was seventeen hundred and fifty dollars a week. Okay. Between CBS and Twentieth Century, yeah. through the auspices of Gene Reynolds, they had said. We'll give him $7,500 a week. Now, you talk to complain about that. Never told me that. Forget the... Yeah. You've got to remember that in the, in the time, you don't really know. You can't say after the third year, hey, this show's going to run another eight years. And you can't say, hey, I'll bet you the Screen Actors Guild will pass a rule where the residuals will be guaranteed for the run of the show. Mm -hmm. For the first year, I get no residuals. But for the second and third year, you do. 
but you you couldn't then sit there and 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 say, hey, I bet you the residual of this, I bet that'll be worth if I stayed in the show that runs another eight years. Hell, that'll be worth a couple of million bucks. You know, you don't you don't have any way of. But then on the other hand, some guy comes across the street and says, look, this is our offer. We'll give you one million dollars to come and work exclusively for us. Work up the terms. We'll make it comfortable for you. You can do what you want to do. You have to do X number of tonight shows. You have to do one hour special. You have to do uh, no less than three series. Now, what would you do? And you have a salary of $1,750 a week times 22, sometimes 24. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's your income. Plus, if you can, you know, you do a commercial or you right. go to Dayton and you sign autographs against a million dollars to be paid out however you want it paid out. But I was able to then talk to my attorney and said, okay, here's the, you know, the $12,000 that I owe you. I don't want the house. She can have the house. She can have the car. Just let me have check. What I don't allow myself to do is to look back. I don't, I regret and will to the day I die, not being able to ever be in anything as good as MASH was and the relationships that we established as actors. So I'm curious, Jeff, uh, hearing that, uh, because you had a, a close personal relationship with McLean Stevenson. What was going through your mind and your heart when you were listening to Mac talking about his reason for wanting to leave the show? Well, um, I certainly never had any inkling about the fact that it may be connected to uh, needing money. And that was uh, that was a big revelation to me hearing that. Um, I really thought it was more of an artistic career decision. And that certainly may have been a significant part of it, but I did not realize that it was going to be connected to a financial issue as well. And I understand that. I mean, here is a gentleman who had a life and had a family and had issues that he had to deal with and was not happy with his salary and Many of us at various times in our lives and our careers and our jobs have not been happy with our salaries yeah. and wanted to advance and wanted to grow you know, our income. And so he saw an opportunity to do that and he was under pressure uh, financially to do that as well. So, you know, as painful as it was for all of us to lose him as a friend and lose the character, uh, I certainly can't fault him, and I understand, you know, you can certainly understand his reasoning as a human being to to make that decision. And I know it was tough, but he had to make it, and, and he did, and that's what happened. And you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no offense to McLean Stevenson no or horses offense. anywhere. <laughs> I've offended pretty much anybody, everybody so far. Uh, I'm working on you, Ryan, and I just don't know which way to go. I don't if you have a horse named Edwina, then it's a Edwina. double whammy. <laughs> right? Oh, you know, that'd be kind of a nice name for a, a horsey. Edwina. Oh, well, never mind. I got to go away now. <laughs> A huge thank you to our friend Michael Hirsch for making yet another exclusive episode possible here on MASH Matters. The fact that he had this audio and it was in his desk drawer for 30 years and when he found it, he sent it to us without any hesitation. 
It did take some cleaning. You know, audio tape over 30 years deteriorates. And thanks to some special audio wizards that you know, Jeff, we were able to make this audio listenable. I have a real quick clip here of the original tape. Let me just play that right here. Wait, hold on one second. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. So we took that and (laughs) and we were able to create something that is listenable. By the way, I want to go back just to Mac for a second about the fact that uh, CBS really was responsible for making the decision to drop (laughs) Colonel Blake into the Sea of Japan. Hey, hey, spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, and, you know, that's a, uh, that was a real difficult, well, it probably wasn't difficult for them, but it was difficult for the, for the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that they were powerful enough and wanted that to happen was a revelation to me and very interesting that they exerted that power to make that happen because they did not want him to leave and they did not want him to be able to share that character or play that character in any form anywhere else. So, wow. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yikes. It's pretty big. Yeah, pretty big. CBS. Walk softly, carry a big stick, CBS. Uh, so before we go, you know, this is episode 100, a big momentous occasion. The first 100 episodes, we've had interviews with many wonderful people. We have answered or uh, tried to answer, attempted to answer questions from listeners. We've received many voicemails from listeners. Those voicemails are all great, but they kind of pale in comparison to some of the voicemails that we've received here in the last week. Hey, Jeff and Ryan, it's Mike. Um, I just wanted to say thanks. Congratulations, first of all, to you for your 100th episode of MASH Matters. That's astonishing. And thanks to you for uh, keeping alive in so many people's minds and memories and hearts uh, this wonderful show that I was so lucky to be a part of. You, you guys and your, your, <laughs> your craziness, Jeff, you were part of it, so you were there. With us, you know uh, what an extraordinary experience it was. And Ryan, obviously, as a a fan of the show, you are, as I understand it at least, uh, as dedicated to this reflection on it as uh, Jeff is. So thank you. I can't tell you how great it is to have the opportunity to check in periodically and hear what you guys are talking about in terms of the show. It was a wonderful experience for me. I remain the luckiest actor in the world. And I thank you for the attention and the caring and the the talent that you've devoted to this MASH Matters process. Take care. Jeff and Ryan, I just noticed that your phone number ends in 4077. How apropos and clever. It's Gary Berghoff, who played Radar on MASH. I'm just calling to congratulate you both on your 100th episode. You've done a wonderful job with this podcast. I love you both very much, and I've enjoyed being on the podcast. God bless you, and uh, blessings uh, in the future of your podcast. Love you. Bye. I am Ash Matters. This is Jamie Farr from Toledo, Ohio, and congratulations on your 100th broadcast. Mash matters, and it mattered to me a great deal. So congratulations. Well, you guys are so funny. It's Loretta, and I'm calling to congratulate my friends for the 100th episode of MASH Matters because, oh, my gosh, 
mass matters. It matters. You guys matter. It's been a wonderful ride, and now you're going for the 200th episode, which you will do. I mean, that's, you know, it's a given because you're wonderful. You're perfect, and I love you. Bye. Hi, Jeff and Ryan. It's Alan. Listening to your show brings back memories I didn't even know I had. In fact, I'm not entirely sure they ever happened, but it's nice to hear them. I love it. It all, it all happened so long ago, that show. Sometimes it feels like it happened to somebody else. But fortunately, he lets me live in his house. I know, I know I've done that joke before, but th- th- your show is all about reruns, so I, d- I didn't think you'd mind, right? Jeff, I still do remember our times in the mess tent. Your eyes begging for forgiveness as you shoveled SOS onto my food tray. I always enjoyed our scenes together. Congratulations to both of you, and keep the memories coming at least for another hundred episodes. Thanks. Uh, wow, talk about ending on a high note. Uh, I'm kind of speechless um, that, you know, it's still even after 100 episodes, knowing that I, as a fan of this show, that I've loved my my whole life, that I get to do this and I get to talk to these people and I get to talk to you, Jeff, and that I get to hear people like uh, Mike Farrell and Loretta Swit and, and Gary and, and Jamie and Alan freaking all to say my name <laughs> is something that I will never forget. And I, I am thankful to you and I'm thankful to our listeners for making this podcast what it is. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the first 100 episodes. I didn't realize that Alan's middle name was freaking. I didn't know that. <laughs> This is the first time I've heard that. Dear, what you learn here on MASH Matters is incredible. Uh, Well, yeah, I, uh, you know, thank you to those wonderful people who I love dearly. They were inspirational to me. They helped me grow up a little bit. Uh, In fact, a lot. And uh, they helped me with a career. Uh, They helped me give me uh, (laughs) a a good deal of uh, scope and understanding and perspective and uh, I thank every single one of them. I am very grateful that I had an opportunity to to be with them. And I'm very grateful that, that they called and left those messages. And it's very meaningful to me as well. And to us, it's meaningful to us and our podcast. And I hope it's meaningful to our listeners as well. And to our listeners, I want to say thank you very much. My gosh, uh, you know, you've said this many times, <laughs> Ryan, we didn't know what was going to happen when we started this. <laughs> and uh, here we are at 100 episodes and people still show up and listen, which is a little surprising, but they do. More than a little <laughs> surprising, yes. <Yeah. laughs> but we, we really appreciate every single one of you and, and uh, adore doing this podcast. And hopefully we will be here on the 200th episode as well. And Ryan Patrick, thank you. This was your uh, original idea to do this, and I just hogged my way into it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I don't know whether you really wanted me to, but I'm glad I did. And uh, I'm I'm very grateful to the wonderful time we have together and doing this. And you know, I I adore doing it, and I and I thank you for being a friend and for being a wonderful uh, partner and broadcaster as well. We will continue doing it until people say, "Mm, you can stop doing it now. (laughs) Please, (laughs) please stop doing it now. So thanks, everybody. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you to Loretta and Gary and Mike and Alan. And we love you dearly. And we thank you so much for being a part of it. And until next time, here's looking up your old address. (laughs) 